You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. I love to worship with you. Uh, Good to see you today. Hope that you've had a good week. If you're feeling like you've got a little more room today, uh, that's a good thing. You should... uh, Thank some of your fellow faith family members. We had a 74% increase in the early service this morning. So uh, it's amazing what the power of suggestion will do. Uh, Some people did, in fact, shift over into the early service, and we're certainly grateful for that. Um, Just a couple of things. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 7 if you want to go ahead and start turning there. Um, Next week uh, is Baptism Sunday. Uh, We're planning to do Baptism across the street in the classic sanctuary. There's a story behind that, actually. We had a staff uh, text thread going for a little while trying to kind of really land on what we should call that. I suggested the dilapidated sanctuary, but um, that was rejected. That probably wouldn't be good PR. But uh, anyway, uh, we will do baptism uh, immediately after the early service next week across the street. Uh, and so the person being baptized over there is 80 years old. So you can imagine it's a little more difficult to get into the tank uh, that we use over here. But uh, we have several baptisms scheduled for next week. Uh, if that's a, a step that you have been praying about taking in your faith journey, uh, we would love to have a conversation with you about that. Uh, we do not practice what some might call spontaneous baptisms. Uh, and so like uh, on the, on, in the moment, um, uh, we certainly wouldn't want to, to deny you being baptized, but it is important to us because of the significance of baptism and all of that, that we, uh, that you would sit down with one of our pastors and we would have a discussion about that. So uh, you have time this week for us to do that. Uh, there is a link on the website. If you look at the, the This Is Us tab, you can pull that down and there's a section in there on baptism uh, and, uh, and it'll answer uh, questions that you may have. And there's a place in there where you can uh, fill out an interest form and we'll connect and have a conversation about that. But that will be next Sunday. Also, we mentioned that uh, Chris and Shelly Riggs would be with us today. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they've had some illness in their family, so we had to reschedule that. They're, uh, they're penciled in right now for September the 24th. There's some of our missions partners serving in uh, West Africa, and so we look forward to, to them being with us at a later date. But God's doing some amazing things, and uh, if you were not a part of this past Sunday evening's uh, members meeting, uh, our faith family's growing. We, had, uh, we approved eight families uh, for membership uh, in this cycle, and uh, there are many, many others that are still in, the, uh, in process, and so we're just so grateful for all that God is doing. I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in your giving. Uh, This is a critical time. If you look over here at the board, uh, our provision partners, you see those uh, lines are growing. Some of you are giving faithfully and sacrificially to some of those areas, uh, and we're so grateful that you are. Um, We're just uh, excited uh, for these next few weeks. Uh, Also, um, would love to know the future, all right? I would love to be able to give you a date when we're going to move and all of that, but uh, that's just not possible right now. Uh, But look forward to, in the next several weeks, us uh, giving you more details about when that move will happen. Well, after a pause uh, for our Summer in the Psalm series, we've now returned to our journey through John's Gospel. Last week, uh, we looked at the first 13 verses of chapter 7. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 24. 
Several years ago, it was uh, reported that Matthew 7.1 had replaced John 3.16 as the most quoted verse of the Bible. Now, of course, John 3.16 is, uh, is well known. It's probably a verse that you memorized at an early age if you uh, were involved in church. Uh, it has been cherished by Christians for centuries as a powerful summary of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, Matthew 7.1 says, judge not lest you be judged. And so there are these claims that that verse had replaced John 3.16 as the most quoted Bible verse. And uh, I also heard that uh, the most quoted verse was from 1 John 4, uh, which says, God is love. And maybe you've heard those two kind of mashed together. Uh, You know, God is love. And so, you know, judge not lest you be judged, right? Um, and usually that comes in the context of a, of a conversation where there's a disagreement over someone's beliefs or someone's actions or whatever. And so it's like throwing up, oh, who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong or what I believe is incorrect and that kind of thing. And so now I never could find any evidence that any of those verses was ever officially the verse most often quoted uh, by Americans or even how someone would measure that. I have no idea. But enough preachers mentioned it in sermons and enough books Uh, It was written in enough books that uh, it must be true, right? Uh, Actually, here's what does seem right. A a clear and a concise understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ seems to have been replaced in the minds of many, even professing Christians, by a fuzzy, all-embracing acceptance of anything that claims to be gospel truth. In fact, much of that, most of that is anti-gospel. That much we do know, and that's based upon just personal observation and conversations that I've had with different individuals. It's observable. So what did Jesus mean and not mean when he said, judge not lest you be judged? Well, here in John chapter 7, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders of his day, he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What does that mean? And does it contradict what is said in Matthew 7, 1, to judge not lest you be judged? In Matthew 7, 1, Jesus was speaking against the very common human tendency to hypocritically condemn others in our minds, to elevate ourselves to judge, to the judge. It's very similar to what he meant when he said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and and not see the log that is in your own eye? We're so good at spotting sin in others and condemning them for it while we are so slow to see the sin in our own lives. And there's, a, there's something you need to remember in this conversation. There is a huge difference between being judgmental and practicing good judgment. There's a huge difference. In fact, here's what Jesus didn't mean when he said that. He didn't mean don't be discerning. He wasn't saying there's no such thing as right or wrong, truth and falsehood, so just be accepting of everything without making distinctions or filtering anything out. That would not only be false teaching, it would be incredibly foolish on our parts. We all make judgments regularly. Some of you very foolishly choose vanilla ice cream over chocolate anytime you're given that choice. We regard certain things as true and others as false. We embrace some things as good and and, and reject other things as bad, right? 
Well, in today's passage, Jesus is confronting the Jewish religious leaders and the crowds because they are making poor judgments based on appearances and superficial religiosity and not based on truth. If there's any one thing that I pray for the most as a pastor, it's for discernment. I find myself daily needing discernment. I need God to give me wisdom in making wise decisions, in in making good judgment calls. And and, and we know that certain decisions are far more significant and and, and can many times be life-changing as it relates to just the direction of our lives. Some of you, if you were to to look back at your life, you would say, yeah, there was this critical point where I made this decision and it impacted the rest of my life, maybe negatively. Maybe maybe you surrounded yourself with the wrong kind of friends, and because you did, you engaged in some of the wrong kind of activities, and because you did, that impacted your life. So it's very, very important that we understand what it is to practice good judgment, discernment. So Jesus gives us some wonderful guidance here for how we can judge with right judgment or practice discernment. So we pick it up in verse number 14 of John chapter 7. I hope that you'll follow along there as I read. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning... When he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. So I want us to unpack from these few verses what it is to make wise judgment, to judge with good judgment. And I want you to notice, first of all, the importance of the right source. The reason discernment is so important in the world in which we live is because we are inundated with information. Many would say, this is the information age. Where in the past, I mean, those of you who are old enough to remember Encyclopedia Britannica, remember that? You had that whole set in your, in your house, you know, and if you needed important information, you would go check out the encyclopedia. All of that stuff is literally at our fingertips now, and we're just being flooded with all kinds of information, some of it good information and some of it garbage, right? And so you're constantly left wondering, is, is what I'm reading in this article, is it really true? Is this truth? Is this a reliable source? And I'm consistently mystified by how many people will take a source, like a satire site, like the Babylon Bee or the Onion or something, and and they will like repost this as if it's like truthful information. I'm like, you might want to check the source on this, right? There have even been times where, you know, I've tried to call out someone because I knew that what they were putting out there was, it was blatantly false. And, And the response sometimes was, well, but it could be true. It could be true. It could be true that I'm a millionaire. 
okay? But I'm not, trust me, okay? So you see why it's so important that we practice good judgment? I mean, it's just amazing to me the things that people will accept. I mean, and you've probably heard it said, well, I saw it on the internet, <laughs> as if everything that you see on the internet must be true. We know that's not, that's not, that's not realistic. That's not reasonable even. So you've got to look at the source. You've got to have the right source. And we see that here in verses 14 through 17. Now, we pick things up in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, remember last week, Jesus' brothers encouraged him to go to, to Jerusalem publicly at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they wanted him to do some spectacular show-stopping stuff, right? To gain a larger following for his campaign to be the Messiah. The, the religious leaders had looked to Jesus, uh, at the, or looked for him at the beginning of the feast, waiting for him to do exactly as his brothers had suggested. But Jesus was not campaign, campaigning for the office of Messiah. And he wasn't going to play the role of public spectacle. He would, however, take the opportunity to publicly teach people gathered in the temple the truth about God and his kingdom. So that's what we find him doing. Now, the temple courtyard was a, was a, a public space where many rabbis were, would commonly take their seats and begin teaching. If you've ever been to Israel, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, uh, maybe the images that you see, that, that the ones that you most commonly see today are actually of, of an Islamic mosque. It's called Al-Aqsa. It's the, the Dome of the Rock you will sometimes see. That is actually a mosque. Okay, but if you go under the Temple Mount, you will find that it is one of the most strategic pieces of real estate in the world. If you look around for just a moment, you will see images from three of the world's main religions. You will see the crescent moon of Islam. You will see the Star of David representing Judaism. You will see the cross representing Christianity, all laying claim to that little piece of property, basically, that we call the Temple Mount, right? Okay, and so if you've been there, you know uh, that, that, that this, what this area kind of looks like now. Even today, this part of the Temple Mound remains around the Western Wall. It's called or the Wailing Wall. If you've ever seen video or images of, of, of Orthodox Jews, they're praying and they're rocking back and forth. And they're putting little prayers written on sheets into the crevices of the Wailing Wall. Okay, That is as close as they can get to the Temple. It's a very contentious area. Uh, of the entire time that Christy and I were in Israel, that was the only place that I felt a little creeped out. Okay, they made it clear to us, you could not take a copy of the scriptures up on the Temple Mount. Uh, I was not to show my wife any affection whatsoever. Couldn't hold her hand, couldn't put my arm around her, things of that nature. And what you would see there is you would see imams and different ones around this area, and they were teaching. It's like they had little small groups going on in different places. Uh, our tour guide told us about a group one time that very foolishly decided while they were on the Temple Mount, they were just going to gather up and start singing worship songs to Jesus. That was a bad idea, okay? It almost caused a riot in the city of Jerusalem. That wasn't very wise. So, so th th it was kind of in that area where Jesus would have been at this time. And so uh, what you'll find there today is you'll, it's, it's kind of like an open-air synagogue where many rabbis can be seen. Some are teaching, others are praying, others are celebrating bar mitzvahs. It was here that Jesus then took his seat and began to teach, okay? Um, and, and his teaching caused a level of astonishment because Jesus had never been formally trained in any of the major rabbinical schools of that day. He'd never been a disciple of one of the prominent rabbis of that day. So he, he had a level of knowledge of the scriptures and theological truth that seemed impossible, particularly for one known as the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, as the leader of a group of Galilean fishermen. This just wasn't making sense. 
It would have been easy to say, well, I'm sure his teaching can hold the attention of the country folks, you know, in the backwoods areas, uneducated Galileans and that kind of thing. But here he is teaching in the temple, speaking powerfully, and people were astonished. Now, I love that section of the text here. It says, how does he have such knowledge? But it's like he's never studied. You ever have a classmate like that? Those people that just kind of make you sick. Like you had poured hours into preparation for a test. You knew they had not, and they always got a better grade than you did. Can you imagine being a classmate of Jesus? I mean, that'd be a little tough, right? What they're saying here is that he's not been formally trained. He's not degreed is the way that we would say it today, you know. Where are your credentials, that kind of thing. And the other thing you've got to realize is that in that particular day, um, if, if you were not attached to a particular rabbi, you were kind of seen as a renegade of sorts. You're just kind of freewheeling it, shooting from the hip and that kind of thing. And so if you didn't uh, often quote your rabbi or uh, appeal to the rabbinical traditions of which you were a part and those kind of things, that would be conceded, uh, perceived as blasphemous almost. It would be like me getting up here, never opening the Bible Sunday after Sunday, and just like spewing out what Mike Lovely thinks about everything in the world. I mean, you would hopefully, most of you would go, I'm out. <laughs> That's not what this is about. You know, if I just come up here every week and I just open some article out of Newsweek or Time Magazine or Sports Illustrated or whatever, and that's all we talked about. Um, it, in, in a way, that's kind of what, you know, they felt was going on. He'd never been a disciple of one of these prominent rabbis, and yet this level of knowledge was clear. They wanted to know how he got his education. And so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, again, good rabbis in Jesus' day would always quote other rabbis, often appealing to these rabbinical traditions of which they were a part. It was considered arrogant, presumptuous for a rabbi to simply state his own opinion on a text. Jesus never quoted any rabbis. He was not affiliated with any particular rabbinical school, but he wanted people to know that he was not just making stuff up. He was sent out and authorized, this is important, by the very source of truth, God the Father himself. And we know that Jesus himself personified truth itself because he was very God. That's why he said, I am the way, what? The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So he wanted to make it clear of, of the source of his teaching. So now, we could say, well, well, if Jesus was God, then couldn't he have just appealed to his own authority? And I think you'll find that as we make our way through the rest of John's gospel, Jesus will make his own divinity more clear. But remember, Jesus was fully man, even as he was fully God. And the man Christ Jesus, who is the Messiah, the mediator, is a faithful man, was filled with the Holy Spirit, depended on the wisdom of his Father, his Heavenly Father, in everything. He was sent into the world by the Father, and he looked to the Father for all truth, even as we're called to do. So the first test that we have in wanting to judge with right judgment is check the source. Check the source. We sometimes say it this way. It's kind of a crude way of saying it, but I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Uh, I was joking around with John Williamson this past week. We were talking about something related to the building, so it wasn't anything uh, incredibly significant, no big truth claims or anything like that. But I said, because I worked with a guy several years ago who would often say this, he would say, I've already told you more than I know. <laughs> you ever done that? 
Like, like you have some maybe firmly held opinions about something or you've formed an opinion before you've heard the matter, which by the way, scripture makes it clear is very unwise. He who answers a matter before he hears it is a shame and folly to him. Have you ever jumped to conclusions or presumed something to be true only to later find out that it wasn't? And you're like eating crow, right? That's because we've not practiced wise discernment. And some of you are old enough to remember back in the day when churches would often have prayer chains. And what that meant was you had four or five people designated to be at the top of the prayer chain. And if there was a significant need that came through the church office, those five people would be contacted to activate the prayer chain. And they would have a list of people that they were to call, right? And so that person would call the next person, that person would call the next person, that person would call the next person. You know what we discovered a few years ago? That by the time it got to the end of the prayer chain, the prayer request was very different than it was in its original form. Why? Because when people heard the prayer request on the phone, they started adding information that they thought might be true. Well, what I heard was, what, what I heard was, what, what I, and, and pretty soon it becomes almost like a gossip line, right? It's like the old telephone game where you say something and by the time you see, so you see what happens here. You've got to understand, what is the source? What's the source? And a lot of people would try to tell us today that there really is no source of truth. And so we've adopted this idea socially. <laughs> Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And that's why we live in a very chaotic, broken world. Everybody's just kind of doing what's right in their own eyes, thinking there is no real standard of truth. And yet God's word, I mean, it, we're told in Scripture, it's like a plumb line. It's, it's the standard by which we should measure all things. And so this all connects then with the second test, which, which, which allows us to check our own hearts. Jesus says here, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. What are you seeking from the teaching that you're receiving? From the books you're reading, from the podcasts that you listen to, from the blogs that you follow, all of those things. What, what is the disposition of your heart is what we might say. Is it to do the will of God, or are you looking for something else? Do you just want a quick fix for a happier life? Are you yearning to, to be successful, to be well-liked by others? Is your goal to win the next argument? What is the disposition of your heart? And that's really important as we gather here every week. What is the disposition of your heart as we gather here together and open God's word together? Are you in a receptive mode? Do you come hungering and thirsting for the things of God, for godly wisdom and righteousness? Or are you kind of checked out mentally while I stand up here and talk? Like, what is the disposition of our heart? I think that's a, a bit of what Jesus was getting at here. We, we need the right, uh, the right disposition of heart if we are to be discerning and receive right teaching. Of course, only God truly knows our hearts or can change our hearts. So we need to go to him continually in prayer, asking him to show us our own deep heart motivations and to change our hearts to reflect his heart. You ever pray and ask God to just help you love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates? That's the right disposition of heart. The second thing that I want us to see here from verses 18 through 20 is the right glory. The right glory. 
So from having the right heart disposition, uh, the right source, Jesus then shifts to talk about having the right goal, we might say, the right outcome in view. And in doing so, he contrasts two different glories. Notice what the text says. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So Jesus contrasts these two goals here, seeking your own glory versus seeking God's glory. And it's interesting how Jesus contrasts these two glories. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. This is probably very close to what the Jewish religious leaders were accusing Jesus of doing. Okay, since he never quoted any great rabbis, he never seemed to be speaking on his, he seemed to always be speaking on his own authority, but yet we know that it was far from it. So instead, it was the Jewish religious leaders who spoke on their own authority, despite the fact that they might quote great, great rabbis to support their interpretations, or they manipulated the scriptures to say what they wanted to say. They chose which rabbi to quote to spin the interpretation the way that they wanted it to sound. Why did they do this? Because they were seeking their own glory. They were seeking their own glory. The religious leaders were actively involved in this secret plot to arrange to have Jesus arrested and put to death. So their their pretense for wanting to do this was the healing of the paralyzed man on the Sabbath day that Jesus had done the last time he was in Jerusalem. We find that in John chapter 5. Now, that was a number of weeks ago for us. And so just to kind of remind you of, of, of the context here, after Jesus healed this paralyzed man, we are told the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why, this is what the text says, this this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then in verses 15 through 18 there, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So to the Jewish religious leadership, think about this, Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to their glory. He was a threat to their glory. They held sway over God's people, holding positions of power and authority because they were, uh, they, they were seen as the anointed spiritual leadership of God's people, the ones who represented God to the people of God. And now it's as if some competition is moving in on their turf performing spectacular, undeniable public miracles, claiming that God was his father. And so they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And the law of Moses provided them with the perfect excuse. But as is always the case, Jesus called their bluff. He told the truth. None of them kept the law of Moses. If they did, they wouldn't be conspiring to have him killed. Now the crowd reacts with shock and outrage at Jesus' accusation, okay? Because they simply cannot believe that their revered spiritual leaders could be plotting to murder murder an innocent man. And so they accuse Jesus of having a demon, of being out of his mind is literally what they were saying. But of course, we know that Jesus' accusation is right. He is also right in his diagnosis of the cause for their murderous plot. They are not seeking to guard the law of Moses. 
which they didn't even keep themselves. They were seeking to guard their own glory, which is what they really serve. So the goal of our lives is one of two things. It's either our own glory or the glory of God. The way that we seek our own glory might be through religion. It might be through our career. It might be through good deeds, good things that we might do. It might be through trying to get uh, rich. Uh, Yet if it is for our own glory that we are seeking, we will not be able to see clearly, to judge rightly, or act righteously. Have you ever heard it said of someone, or maybe it's been said of you, that you have clouded judgment? That's why it is so important that Scripture tells us time and time again to guard our hearts. Because you've got to remember this truth. The things that we love, our passions will determine our priorities, and our priorities will determine our path. Always remember that. Your passions will determine your priorities, and your priorities will determine your path. That's why I always say people fundamentally will do what they really want to do. Myself included. I will find a way. I will make time for the things that are most important to me. That's why scripture says, guard your hearts, guard your hearts, guard your hearts. Because God knows the things that we love the most are the things that will drive our passions, right? And our passions will determine our priorities, and our priorities will determine our path. So if a person is in love with stuff, for example, then that will become their passion. That it, many times it will consume a person. I've got to have more stuff. I've got to have more square footage. I've got to have that car. I've got to have that. I've got whatever it is. And because we're consumed by that, it begins to cloud our judgment. And pretty soon we're going down a path that we shouldn't be on. So it's all about the right glory. The apostle Paul knew the surpassing greatness of living for the glory of God. He writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And he goes on to write, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do we know the joy and the peace of living for the glory of God, living for the unseen and the eternal weight of glory, which is far beyond all comparison? Because the fact is, I've I've watched it happen time after time after time. Someone comes to the end of their life, and they've literally given their entire lives, most of their energy, most of their resources to things that do not matter outside of this world. They don't. So it's all about the glory, the right glory. Number three, verses 21 through 24. I want us to consider for a moment the right spirit. Now, Jesus goes on to respond to the crowd's accusation by exposing the cause of the leadership's plot against him and to redirect the way the religious leaders in the crowd should be thinking about the law of Moses. So Jesus calls the crowd's attention back to the one work that he did publicly on the Sabbath in Jerusalem roughly a year earlier. 
This wasn't Jesus' only miracle, we know that, nor was it his only healing done on the Sabbath, but it was the one public healing that he did on the Sabbath in Jerusalem in the shadow of the temple. Kind of a big deal. Now, the significance of what Jesus is saying here, I think, is missed in the ESV because the translators of the ESV left out the connection between verses 21 and 22. The the NASB, I think, adds some clarity for us, and it renders verses 21 and 22 this way. It says, Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. That little phrase, for this reason, that's translated into our English, is what's called a strong causal connection in Greek. So Jesus is saying that he did a miraculous work of healing a man, and everyone was amazed. But it was for this reason that Moses gave the people the right of circumcision. Now, what does he mean? He is saying that the religious leaders not only failed to keep the law of Moses, they failed to understand its purpose, the reason for which it was given. Circumcision was given to God's people to show them their need, their need of healing and cleansing and restoring because of the guilt and the pollution and the brokenness that is brought into the world and into their lives because of sin. The Sabbath, likewise, was given to show God's people their need for true and eternal rest. So Jesus came in the fulfillment of the law of Moses because the law of Moses was given to show God's people their need in a way that only Jesus could fulfill. That's why it's referenced in Scripture as a schoolmaster that brings us to grace. That's what it does. These Jewish leaders... They thought it was appropriate to circumcise a baby on the Sabbath, thus breaking the Sabbath to fulfill the higher duty of circumcision. How much more appropriate is it then for Jesus to heal a whole man's body in fulfillment of the reason why circumcision was given? This this gets to the heart of what we would call the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Now, whenever we use that kind of terminology, we typically mean, hey, don't be so strict well, like, let's face it, if we're driving down 75 and we get stopped for going 71 and a 70, most of us are going to be incredulous, right? We're like, are you kidding me? You're giving me a citation for going 71 in a 70? Like, isn't it just kind of an unwritten rule in our society that you can go at least 5 or 10 miles over the posted speed limit, right? I mean, like, Technically, it would not be, I mean, you, you have broken the law, okay? So that's typically what we mean when we're talking about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And some of you, you're kind of letter of the law kind of people. You're a rule keeper. And so, man, I mean, like, you're going to dot every, you know, I and cross every T. And, I mean, you're going to follow the rules exactly as, as they're stated as best you can. Well, these, these Jewish religious leaders... Uh, they were missing the, the spirit, and I want you to think capital S, spirit of the law. You see, the spirit of legalism says that good people keep the rules, and they're good because they keep the rules, because keeping the rules is good. The true spirit of the law, the Holy Spirit who gives the law, who writes it on our hearts, shows us that the purpose of the law is to show us God's character and our need. Ultimately, the law shows us how righteous and holy and wise God is, as well as how needy and broken and guilty we are, so that we can know our need for Jesus and come to him for salvation. 
The spirit of legalism is the spirit of self-justification, of wanting to be able to compare myself with other people and declare myself righteous. The true spirit of the law looks to God himself and sees how perfect he is, then realizes how, for, fall we, how, how short we fall of his glory. And so then seeking his glory, we, we, we long for redemption and for healing that is found only in Jesus. So the spirit of the law will always lead us to Jesus. That's the reason why God gave us the law. For the religious leaders of Jesus' day to be able to make right judgments and for us to be able to make right judgments, it requires the right will, the right disposition of our hearts, seeking the right glory and keeping in step with the right spirit. Our will must be to do his will to the glory of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. And only when we're doing so can we know and discern and judge rightly. So I want you to think for a moment as we close, who's really on trial here, as it were? You see, the confrontation in today's passage between Jesus and the religious leaders in the crowd began as an attempt by the religious leaders to put Jesus on trial. It was something that we see consistently throughout the Gospels. Always somebody trying to trip him, trip him up. Always somebody, some attorney, you know, was lawyers trying to ask him some tricky question to back him into a corner or something. The religious leaders always doing this stuff. It's like, who does this guy think he is anyway? Where does he get off talking like this? Very quickly, though, it's no longer Jesus who was on trial, but the religious leaders and the crowd that followed them. That's how it is when we have a true encounter with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you might think that you're evaluating him. You're evaluating him to see whether or not he's worth following, whether or not he is all that people say he is. You might be wondering who this Jesus really is and why people make such a big fuss about him. Why can't I just be indifferent about who Jesus is? Why, why is it not enough for me to agree, yes, he was a good teacher who taught good things? Why isn't that enough? But you don't realize that you're really the one who's on trial. That it's your heart and it's my heart and it's your character and my character, it's your will and my will that Jesus is examining right now as we look into his word. Before you think to question or examine him, have you realized how you are being questioned and examined by him? Who do you think you are? And who do I think I am? What is your will? What is my will? Is it to do the will of God? Whose glory are we seeking? Is it the glory of God or our own glory? What spirit are we following? The spirit of self-justifying, self-exalting legalism or the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our need and leads us to Jesus? We need to let Jesus expose our own hearts and motivations to us through his word, by his spirit. And then we need to come to him for the healing and the rest that he alone can give. So if we could just for a few moments bow our heads together this morning. I want us to consider for just a moment that the ultimate danger of self-righteousness and that it squeezes out any space for grace.
the religious leaders of Jesus' day clearly lacked grace. They didn't extend grace to others. They didn't speak with grace. Why? Because they didn't see their own need for grace. They saw their righteousness and thought they were fine. Grace was irrelevant, unnecessary. Those who see grace as unnecessary for themselves will never show grace to others. So if self-righteousness is given a room before we know it or realize it, it will spread to every corner and grace will be evicted. And because of the deceptive nature of self-righteousness, we'll even sometimes feel good about it. Because I'm better than they are. I'm better than her. I'm better than him. I'm better than most. It's one of the heart of the matter here. As Jesus confronts the religious people of his day, which he often did. So it's a matter of your heart. So there may be some here today and you would say, I, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, Pastor Mike. I'm, I'm sure doing a lot better than I was a couple of years ago. That, that's great. But if you can't point to a time in your life when you turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ... then you don't truly know him as Savior and Lord. You may know about him, but you can't say that you've been made alive by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're still leaning on your self-righteousness, your self-improvement plan, I would love to show you today from the Word of God how you can know that your sins are forgiven, not because of anything you've done or anything you could ever do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. There may be others who would say, Pastor, I'm so grateful. My testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a Jesus follower. But are you truly living out your identity in Jesus Christ? Or do you find yourself often slipping back into some pseudo-gospel that says it's Jesus plus my best efforts? It's Jesus plus my good behavior. Jesus plus my good deeds. And you still find yourself keeping score with those around you. That in itself is a spirit of Phariseeism. It's not good judgment. My hope and prayer today is that each and every one of us know the Lord Jesus Christ, not just as a good man, not just as a great teacher, but we know him as Savior and Lord. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you that in you, we find ultimate truth, absolute truth. 
Lord, give us discerning hearts. Lord, I thank you that you guide us by your spirit and through your word to the very standard of truth. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, that they are drawn to you today. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the cross, for what it means to us as the very centerpiece of the gospel. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.